0: Thank you, Tony. Let's pray, shall we? Do keep that open as we're coming today to the end of this series. Look at the first half of the book of Exodus. So, Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word. As we've heard it read, may we understand what you are saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I met a minister recently who was telling me some of the challenges that his church faces. The the church is meeting in a building which uh, they own, but it's uh, shared in responsibility with another secular organization. And that organization makes it very difficult for the church to do Christian ministry there. Uh, Other faith groups are allowed in to use the building and store things there, and the, the owners, the host church, are never even told about it. Um, they can't officially use the building midweek, believe it or not, only on Sundays and so on. He said to me, Richard, it really feels like we are in a spiritual battle to share the gospel here. And I thought, yeah, it, it does sound like that. And the Bible says, actually, we're all as God's people in a spiritual battle. We shouldn't go overboard and you know, see devils under every table. But, but there is a battle going on. Uh, ...by the forces of evil to frustrate the purposes, the good purposes of God in the world. And the battle takes place in the the structures of our society, the institutions as well... ...but also right here, doesn't it, in our very hearts. And the story of Exodus is a great grand story of a spiritual battle taking place. Uh, To this point in Exodus, that's been particularly between the power of King Pharaoh... ...King of mighty Egypt... Who is shaking his fist, proudly defying the Lord, the God of Israel. And of course, only one side is going to win that battle, and Pharaoh and his army drowned, if you were here, you remember, in the Red Sea, back in chapter 14. And in our passage today, we find the battle's not yet over. Particularly one battle, the Amalekites immediately are seeking to destroy God's people. And each time an enemy pops up trying to frustrate God's people and their purposes, the question is, well, well, who's going to win this time? Is God really committed to protecting and guiding his people and bringing them to the promised land as he promised he would? Who's really going to win this ongoing battle Now, you saw in the reading there are two really quite different episodes, aren't there? There's a story of a dramatic pitched battle and then an account of what seems relatively mundane administration going on. But actually, I think both remind us of the big theme of Exodus. Who is this God, this Lord, who is saving his people? But also, there's a second theme here of how does he do it using the people themselves? What's the people's role in that? So two big themes, and those are both actually in those two very different episodes, the pitch battle and the administration story. Here's the first of the big two themes. Uh, and we're going to especially look at that first story, the battle with the Amalekites. Here's the first theme, the victory that God gives. So if you're in chapter 17, verse 8, the Amalekites... Another tribe attack the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, a bit of backstory here. Who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites are actually family to the Israelites. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, the grandsons of Abraham. So they're a distant family. And this attack seems to be part of an ancient feud between Esau's descendants and the Israelites. This is a story of war in the Bible, but notice, very important, the Israelites do not start it. It's an act of self-defense that they go to war. The Amalekites attack and actually give no warning either, do they? They don't declare war first. They just attack. And so, in verse 9, this is what Moses says. He says to his team, to his leaders. Tomorrow, I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And he sends Joshua, the general, off with the army into the valley, and he heads up the hill. And you get this amazing scene in the next verses on the mountain top. Moses stands there on the hilltop, holding up the staff. The, it's kind of a big stick, the staff of God in his hands, and. The story goes that when he raises the staff, the Israelites are winning. When he gets tired and his arms drop, they're losing. What's going on there? I've I've read and heard many sermons about prayer from this story. That Moses, you know, when he prays, he's persistent, uh, he's powerful, and he partners with Aaron and Hur. You know, three Ps. And so we're told, prayer is persistent and powerful, and we find people to pray with, partners. And those are all lessons from the Bible about prayer. They're great lessons about prayer. They're true. But you don't really find those lessons in this story. This is not really a story about prayer. You see, in the Bible, what's the staff of God? In Exodus, what's the staff of God represent? Well actually if you remember back in the early chapters of the plagues the staff was used to strike the Nile and turn it to blood. The staff's a picture of God's power and especially his judgment on his enemy in the spiritual battle with evil. This is a story as Moses stands there with the staff up about God giving victory to his people and judging those who oppose him. In this case it's through the force of the Amalekites, that the force of evil is opposing God. And just have a look at verse 14. At the end of the battle, the Lord's given victory. The Lord tells Moses to write down what's happened. A book is written to record the victory so that later generations won't forget the victory God gave over his enemies. And then verse 15, a book but also a banner. Moses builds an altar and says, The Lord is my banner. And a banner is simply a way of saying, in an army, that there's a standard, a flag, isn't there? And that stands, the flag, the banner, at the heart of the people, of the army. That's Moses saying, The Lord stood among us that day and gave us the victory. Let's not forget it. And Moses explains it like this at the end there. He says, I'm calling it this, the banner, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The real battle, he says, wasn't Amalekites against Israelites. It was the force of evil through the Amalekites shaking its fist at the Lord. Lifting its hand against his throne. Trying to dethrone God, as we all do sometimes. And the Lord gave the victory the book to remember, the banner to symbolize. Now in the next chapter, we're just going to look very briefly for a moment at chapter 18. Actually, a very similar theme appears there of how it's the Lord that always gives the victories to his people to rescue us. So if we just flick over to chapter 18 now, and we'll come back to that battle again in a moment in our second point. You see the story here. It feels very different. Moses has left his wife and sons in the desert, and her father, Jethro, who's a priest from Midian. He's a foreigner. And Moses left them in the desert and went back to Egypt, if you were here, uh, right back in chapter 3 and chapter 4, in order to be used to call God's people from slavery out of Egypt to freedom. Now they're back in the desert, and he calls Jethro to come and meet with him again. They're reunited and Moses kisses him. Um, You kind of hope he kissed his wife as well. And then they sit around a casserole that night and Moses fills his father-in-law in in on everything that's happened in Egypt. The plagues, the Passover, the the water that God gave them from the rock in the desert when they escaped and so on. And Jethro replies uh, with amazement to what God has done. But you see what Moses says in his little speech in verses 8 and 9. He could have made himself the hero, couldn't he? He could have said, I went back and I faced up to Pharaoh and I struck them out with my rod and I led them out to freedom and I put faith in God when we had no water. But all the time, it's the Lord that he talks about, isn't it? Moses told his father-in-law about everything The Lord had done to Pharaoh, verse 8, and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, about all the hardships they'd met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. It's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And even when Jethro replies, he's, he's not even what we call a Christian yet, probably. He's a foreigner, a Midianite, a pagan priest. Verse 10, Jethro says, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh, who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. So he's saying, isn't he, I recognize now that a a spiritual battle's been going on, and you've been amazingly rescued, Moses, and your people with you, and now I see it was the Lord that did all of that. Saved, rescued, did everything. As I say, it's not clear if Jethro believes in the Lord fully yet. Um, The experts debate that one. But his response reminds us how powerful the testimony to what the Lord has done is for those who hear it. As I pray for five people that I pray become Christians, I can pray, can't I, for the chance to tell them what the Lord's done for his people in Christ. It's powerful. I mean, next week's baptism service, we're going to hear from six individuals of what the Lord has done in their lives. And it's such an encouragement to realize that we stand with them, if you're a Christian here, on what the Lord has done giving victory over our spiritual enemies. Important, isn't it? Not physical enemies. We don't go out and fight physically in Jesus' name, but over our spiritual enemies. Sin, evil, and death itself. See, this story of the spiritual battle that the Lord wins for his people, foreshadows Jesus. Jesus is here in this story because just as the powers of evil tried to destroy the Israelites through the Amalekites, do you remember how the powers of evil tried to destroy Jesus? They had him arrested and put on trial and beaten and mocked and crucified to try to destroy the Son of God. And you remember what happened next? Just as the Lord gave victory through the symbolic power of the upraised rod of God in Moses' hands, God gave victory through raising up his son, not just to the cross, but to resurrection on Easter Day. Christ gives victory to his son, who is the king of kings, but he also in Christ gives victory to his people, And we need to know this, don't we, because some of our young people tell me how difficult it is to be a Christian at school where uh, other young people and teachers pour scorn on them for believing in Jesus. Others here battle, don't we, with bitterness in our hearts against others, temptations that feel too strong for our faith, and of course, this week in the news, We've seen evil raise its head in many ways, particularly the massacre of innocents in New Zealand. And we do feel frail, don't we? And yet, we can, we must hold on to this truth. God gives victory in Christ to his people. So just to encourage us, a verse or two from Romans chapter 8, where Paul says this, in all these things, he says, we are, I've underlined it, more than conquerors, not because we're powerful, we're not, but through him who loved us. That's always the Bible's way. We are strong in the strength that the Lord provides. More than conquerors through him who loved us, neither death nor life, nor angels or demons, nor any power, will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what the Israelites knew there in the valley as they fought the Amalekites. And that's what we know today as we fight in the Lord's strength all that the force of evil throws against us. Paul does say in Ephesians that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the spiritual powers in the heavenly realms temptation, sin, evil, and so on. And he says, therefore, stand strong in the strength of the Lord, and use the weapons he's given us. Not guns and swords, but the Bible and prayer. And a righteous life. And faith. Take up those weapons this week. When you experience temptation, when you experience the attack of the world upon Christian faith, take up the Bible and prayer and the gospel and peace and faith. So that's, ooh, that's the big message of this story today, of both these stories, that the victory is the Lord's. He gives victory to his people over all that would stop us trusting in Christ or holding on to Christ and sharing him until he comes again. But there is a, a second, a sub-theme here, that relates to it, actually. Again, God's the main character here. But did you notice the people in this story? Because the second theme is this. It's the people that God provides for our encouragement and strengthening. The people that God's providing. So back in that first story, let's go back to chapter 17. And Moses is up there on the hill holding up the staff of God Now, when Moses saw the Amalekites coming, what does he say to Joshua? Does he say, Joshua, look, it doesn't matter whether you go out and fight them or not. We'll just stand here. Or whether you take one person with you or lots of people. Or whether you take just anyone or choose the strongest to fight. No, he says, choose some of our men. Surely he means to choose the warriors and go and fight. Here's the point, you see. Faith means trusting the power of God, but also using the people he's provided, doing something with what he's given us to serve his kingdom. Israel needs Moses' staff, but also here needs Joshua's army, doesn't it? It's both. Holding up the symbol of God's power doesn't mean we don't also need to go out with, spiritually, weapons in hand. God will win the victory but we are to stand and sometimes to fight against evil as well. There was a great reformed bishop of Norwich called Joseph Hall uh, about 350 years ago. He says on this very passage, he says, uh, Old English, he says, In vain shall Moses be on the hill, if Joshua be not in the valley. Prayer, he says, he's thinking particularly about prayer here, prayer without means is a mockery of God. He's saying we can't pray and then say, and I'm doing nothing. Pray and act. That's the point, isn't it? Use, trust in the power of God, but use the means and the people he provides. You see, Moses shows great faith as he sends out Joshua and stands there on the hill. But he's also weak, isn't he? The rod becomes too heavy for him. And what happens He uses the people God provides. Aaron and Hur are beside him. They hold his arms high and he even sits down on a stone to take his weight. In his weakness, he accepts the help God has provided him. And that's the other point of the story, isn't it? It may be God that wins the victory, but we also take the people God provides to help us. That theme's there again, actually, in the second passage. So again, just turn back to chapter 18 again, uh, if you're still with me, jumping around a bit, I know. And that second chapter, a, a new bit of the story starts at verse 13, doesn't it? Where Moses is sitting there, uh, again, he's sitting, isn't he, on a stone, and the people come bringing their legal disputes to him. And it's been all-consuming for him. We can only imagine the kind of things that they're arguing about as they stand there in the desert. You know, um, you ate some of my manna. You stole my goat. Your son was a bit too friendly with my daughter. You took more water from the rock than you were meant to. Now there's none left for me. And Moses has to adjudicate with all these cases. And some of the father-in-law in the Bible were a pain to the man that their daughters married. I Think of, if you know the story in Genesis of Laban, repeatedly deceiving his son-in-law, Jacob. But actually, Jethro, as he watches poor Moses here, with all of these people gathering around him, is a pastor to Moses here. He watches Moses being worn out by the thousands of people. He sees the queue for legal aid stretching down the street and around the corner. And he says to Moses, verse 14, what are you doing? Why do you sit alone as judge whilst people wait around from morning till evening in the queue? Moses explains that it's very important that people hear the word of the Lord and uh, know how to follow God's commands. He's right about that, isn't he? But Jethro says, well, what you're doing is not good. You and the people will only wear yourselves out. And that's where the Lord, through Jethro, provides a person of wisdom, Jethro, and through him other people, helpers to work alongside Moses. And Moses is right. The priority is that God's people hear the word of the Lord. It's always the way in the Bible that God first rescues us and then shows us how to live in response. The gospel leads to godliness. They need to learn how to live and in the next bit of Exodus, that's what happens at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments being given. That matters, and Moses is right. But they also need to have their, their more minor legal disputes settled. So Jethro says, look, you teach the people the gospel, the good news, the commands of God, and appoint godly, uh, trustworthy So non-bribable people to be your judges in the day-to-day disputes. And to his great credit, Moses takes that advice. He focuses on teaching the people, delegating the legal cases, and the crisis is averted. See how God's providing here for his people. In the passage today, both of those stories we've seen that God's purposes for his people are under threat. The Amalekites appear in the desert and they threaten to destroy the Israelites. God intervenes. The the people in the desert are struggling with all of the social friction that arises within the family of God. And it does, doesn't it? And God provides. And the crisis is averted. But all the different people that God provides, are hugely encouraging for us today. Because there's General Joshua going off to lead the army. Up the hill there, there's Aaron and Hur to hold up Moses' arms. In the desert, there's Jethro and his outsider's wisdom. And there are the judges that Moses appoints with their godly honesty. So bringing this for us today... In the light of the victory God gives, the security we have in Christ. Here are two things I think that are important for us to take away. That we can help each other. Because we are, aren't we, the family of God? Moses had Aaron, his brother. He had Hur, another relative. He had Jethro, his father, and so on. We have each other in the family here. The first thing we can do is to strengthen each other. When Aaron and her are holding up Moses' arms there, the word used is they strengthened him. It's the same word in the Greek Old Testament as is used of Paul in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 18. Rather like Jill was saying earlier, as Paul went round and started these churches, he went back, and the word is he went strengthening the disciples, the followers of Jesus. And that's a model for us all, isn't it? We strengthen each other as we follow Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that he gave them mineral supplements with their breakfast every morning. It means he put his arm around them when they were down. He reminded them of the gospel when they were getting confused. He prayed with them and for them. In fact, we'll pray next Sunday morning at the confirmation service. For the six candidates to be strengthened by the Spirit to follow Christ. That's what the word confirmation means. It's Latin for strengthening. But we can do it at the end of the service today. Can we not turn to each other over coffee, ask, what can I pray for you this week? That's strengthening each other. So we can strengthen. And that's a wonderful calling that God has given to us as the family. He's provided you and me, for each other. We can also, just very quickly, we can teach each other. It was the teaching of God's ways, God's works and God's ways, through which God's people were strengthened, that mattered so much to Israel's health back then and to ours today. So I wonder, if you're a parent here, can we encourage you to be teaching your children the works and the ways of the Lord? Uh, That was particularly Moses' role, but it's given to the people of God in the New Testament to teach each other. Uh, Parents are children. But actually, you could be teaching in our Sunday groups on a Sunday as well, some of us. Or could you be trained up by one of your small group leaders to become a leader yourself one day? Could you meet one-to-one with someone to teach each other the scriptures and pray? We can teach each other. We can strengthen each other. You see, we are looking ahead, aren't we, as Christians, as well as back and around us, to the day that Revelation talks about when Jesus will return. It says he will return to judge evil and claim his victory. He'll be like a a rider on a white horse called Faithful and True, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, judging and waging war against evil, it says, and on his robe and thigh his name, King of kings, Lord of lords. And until that time, we can strengthen each other. In the victory he has won, taking our stand in every spiritual battle that comes. It's rather like the words of the hymn by George Duffield put it, and I'll close with this. Great words, actually, aren't they? Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone, for human power will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Keep watch with constant prayer. And when duty calls or danger, be never failing there. Let's make that our prayer as we go into this coming week and the days to come. So, Lord, may we indeed take our stand in Christ, in the strength of him alone, where we see duty, the opportunity to encourage each other, and where we face danger from sin in our hearts, from evil in our world. May we take the weapons you've given us and be never failing in Christ. Amen.